Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort. Folks, they're, they're Pete Dye and Donald Ross Design Courses, ranked number one and number two in the state of Indiana by Golf Week. It was the site of last year's Senior PGA Championship and the LPGA Legends Championship. Check them out online at FrenchLick.com. We are also sponsored by our friends over at The Leather Shop, makers of top-quality custom-made leather dress, casual, and golf shoes. Folks, do yourself a favor and put your feet inside shoes. They're going to keep them feeling good and looking good all day long. You can find them online at the-leather-shop.com. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have the privilege of sharing two great guests with you. First up is going to be Matt Adams, and I'm sure you all know Matt. He's the host of the Fairways of Life show on SiriusXM's PGA channel, as well as the Golf Channel. Matt is a great golf historian. He's also the author of several books, including the Fairways of Life and several in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. So it's, uh, and, and, and folks, quite frankly, he is, uh, he's one of the great interviewers, whether it's on radio or on TV, of all time. So I really look forward to chatting more with Matt on a variety of topics here in just a few moments. Following that, our good friend and regular guest, 2003 PGA champion, Sean McHugh, going to be back with us. It's been a couple of weeks since Sean's been on the show. His schedule very busy, so uh, look forward to uh, catching back up with Sean. We're going to talk with Matt and Sean both about you know this year's Masters, get their thoughts and reactions on what we saw. We'll look uh, ahead to golf's return to the Olympics. We'll talk a little equipment, a little bit on the mental side, like we do every single week here on Next on the Tee. So, we're going to have a lot of fun this morning. It's going to be another insightful show, and I am so glad that you're here to take the journey with us. But let's start the show off right by helping you get your mornings started off right, and that's by going over and checking out our friends at Aroma Ridge because they offer an array of the finest mountain-grown gourmet coffees that you're going to find anywhere on the planet. You can find them online at aromaridge.com. Their secret Hand-selected beans from a variety of coffee-producing countries from around the world. They roast those beans to perfection by their very own roast masters. Their coffees are roasted to order for you. If you like a little flavor in your coffee like I do, they have almost any flavor you can imagine. Plus, you can mix and match flavors to create one of your very own. They've got a great line of biscotti cookies too, folks. And not only are their coffees great, but they are fantastic people as well. Check out all of their great products on, online at aromaridge.com. And like I mentioned, Next on the Tee is brought to you by our friends over at the French Lick Resort up in French Lick, Indiana. Folks, you want to talk about a spectacular resort to both play golf and to just relax and enjoy yourself. 
where you're not going to find a better place anywhere on the planet than the French Lick Resort. Go to FrenchLick.com and see for yourself. Let's hear a word from our friends over there. Now's the time to plan that golf getaway you've been dreaming about at French Lick Resort. We have new Golf Academy packages for 2016, guaranteed to take your game to the next level. Try our one-day Quick Fix Academy for golf emergencies. For more in-depth learning, try the Game Changer, designed to make you a better player. Our staff professionals are ready to work with you at French Lick Resort. Did you know there's only one place in the country that you can play courses designed by two members of the World Golf Hall of Fame on the same property? The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort make us an ultimate golf destination for 2016. Check out the Ultimate Golf Package, the Hall of Fame Package, and other great offerings at FrenchLick.com. Let 2016 be that year you finally take your dream golf getaway at French Lick Resort. Play the courses champions play. Yeah, folks, I promise you, it is spectacular. My family and I already can't wait to get back up there this year. The French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. Oh, by the way, my friends, they've also got a casino right there on the property as well. For more information and to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. And every week here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families are making to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans for all you and your families have done for us over the years. It is through your strength and your effort that our way of life, life is even possible. And folks, if you see a member of our military when you're out and about, whether it's in the airport, <clears throat> at a restaurant, or wherever it is you find yourself, please stop for a moment and tell them thank you. They are our real heroes. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It is such an honor for us to have Next on the T be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. Also want to remind our veterans, be sure to continue to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. What a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information that is designed specifically for our veterans out there. I'm sure you're going to find it both interesting and beneficial for you. Again, globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Matt Adams. And like I mentioned a moment ago, you can find his show, The Fairways of Life, on Sirius XM's PGA Tour channel, as well as the Golf Channel now. Go to watchfairwaysoflife.com slash video so you can stream his show. You can get a lot of the archive episodes there as well. Matt has also been featured on the BBC, ESPN, PGA Tour Entertainment, European Tour Productions, and the Back Nine Network. He's the author of 10 books, including several in the Chicken for the Soup, uh, Chicken uh, Soup for the Soul series and his own Fairways of Life book, which is a fantastic read, folks. Um, he has interviewed almost every living legend in the game of golf that you can imagine. He's one of the best interviewers, not only in the game of golf, but in all of broadcasting as well. I'm an avid listener to his show weekday mornings during my commute. And one of the things that I love about Matt and, you know, from listening to his show and, and talking with him on this one, is he's a regular guy. He's going to go down as a legend in this industry, and he never acts like it. Decades from now, teachers and broadcasters are going to be telling their students, go listen to recordings of Matt Adams. That's how you do it. And I continue to be genuinely honored to spend some time with him uh, again this morning on Next on the T. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for the kind comments. The honor is mutual. 
So, Matt, I want to start off our time this morning kind of looking back at the Masters and what we have and what we saw, you know, both on both sides of the coin, really, Matt, for, you know, what we saw from Jordan Spieth and from what we saw from Danny Willett. First for, for Jordan, he, you know, he's a kid who's, you know, sounded like he is, you know, very mature, way, way beyond his uh, 22 years of age. Do you expect that he'll be able to kind of put this loss in proper perspective, you know, just a few bad holes? move on from that and then, uh, and, and, you know, continue to be, you know, the successful player that he was last year. This isn't going to oh, linger with him for a while. No, I absolutely think that will be the case. Uh, the reason why I have that personal conviction is because of Nick Faldo, believe it or not. The, the week of the Masters, Sir Nick came on the show. I mean, you're a regular listener too. You might remember. I can't remember yep. if it was Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday of that week because we had so many people coming through. And I was talking to him about the 1996 collapse of Greg Norman from the context of saying, don't you think in fairness that you didn't get the credit that you were due because you shot a 67 that day, ironically, the exact same score as Danny Willett fired on the Sunday of the Masters Pass. Right. And he got into, he, he went back to, Nick went back to the Open Championship at Muirfield in 92 where he held it together, although he was leaking some oil, and he was able to close the deal. And he said, you know, if I didn't finish that one off, I think and this is 1992, this was 24 years ago. He said, if I didn't finish that one off, I think it would have left me with some scars, some mental baggage. And so from Jordan's standpoint, because he already has two major championships in his satchel, done. He already he earned them, they're finished, and he did them at a time, and he did them in a way that was both historic and well before the time that anybody thought that he could do it with the brewing process and, and the baking of a, of a tournament player and getting the experience and all that goes into it and when one expects that they're finally ready to break through. And he did it so young that I think he has this arsenal of, that he can draw upon of performance that he can say, you know what, so yeah, one got away, and an argument can be made probably with merit that he let one slip away, although I still think that's somewhat dismissive to Danny Willett, who did what he had to do on the Sunday that he had to do it in order to be in position to win. But nonetheless, I think that Jordan has a place where he can go to say, yeah, you win some, you lose some, and I've already got two, and I contended in multiple others, so everything is fine. I just got to get back to being who I am, and I'll be fine. And to that point, Matt, when we talk about Danny Willett, you know, we, we media, you know, fans of the game, we tend to focus on the guy who lost it versus the guy who won it. Because someone, to your point, he had to shoot 67 to put himself in a position to be there in order to win it. So I think it does do a disservice because I think history or the media tends to focus on the Jordan piece and we don't give the credit to the Danny Willett piece. Yeah, but that happens because of sensationalism, in my view, Chris, that the focus, where you said the focus is on the person that lost versus the person that won, it would be completely reversed if, for example, it went the other way around. If it was Danny Willett that collapsed on 12 and Jordan Spieth pulled it out at the end, it'd be a great story of, of triumph and grasping the brass ring by Jordan Spieth doing what he does. And it would almost be an afterthought that, that Danny Willett collapsed on the 12th hole. But because it happened the other way around, the focus is upon what Jordan didn't do. It's because of the, the popularity contest that surrounds the players that are at mm -hmm. the top of the game that we cheer for. I get it. I understand it. I see why it happens. But 
years from now, as you, when you talk about years and decades from now, when history looks back on the event, if by that time, let's say Danny Willett goes on a tear of his own in the next 15, 20 years, and let's say that he ends up winning multiple majors. Who knows? Pick a number, eight, say. I Just for the heck of it, pick eight. You know, ties in with Tom Watson, uh, currently a winner of eight major championships. Then the view of this Masters will be perceived very, very differently because it was a champion that surged up the leaderboard, grasping the, as I said, the brass ring when the leader was otherwise stumbling on the 12th hole. So it, it flows and ebbs through the currents of time. And so right now I, I'm not tremendously concerned about which way it goes, or whether it represents a trend, because I think we tend to live in a present day conceit in which we think the time and age in which we live in is, is going to define all others after us, which never is the case. So I'm not so much concerned about that. I think ultimately how this Masters will be remembered has a lot to do with what hasn't taken place yet, and that's going to be how Danny Willett defines the rest of his career. And it's interesting that you say that, Matt. It, it almost, you know, I guess, Kenny, if you go all the way back to 1961, right, when, when Arnold had the lead on the last hole and then double bogeyed and, and Gary Player ends up winning, I guess if Gary Player never goes on to win anything else, we would tend to look at it differently. But since Gary Player you know, went on to be the great champion that he is and winning three times there in nine majors and, and, and the rest of that, right? We tend, to, we tend to gloss over the fact that Arnold you know, blew up after, you know, and really, you know, if, I guess if it was today, right, when Arnold you know, hits his tee shot on 18 and starts to accept the congratulations of you know, friends in, in, in the crowd and, and then, you know, like I say, infamously goes on to double bogey, Boy, that, that probably has a whole different place in history if Gary Player doesn't end up becoming Gary Player. And to give you an example of exactly what you're talking about, that 1961 Masters victory by Gary Player, almost no one asks about the collapse of Arnold Palmer when they talk about it. They just talk about Gary Player's three Masters victories, right? Because it, that's the context that you're, that you're giving to that, and that's reality. However, everybody talks about the collapse in 1966 of Arnold Palmer against Billy Casper because Billy Casper, while he won 51 times on the PGA tour, he was not looked at the same as these big, huge, immortal golf stars. He still had three major championships, which surprises people too. But it was at the time, you know, here you have Billy Casper. He's not to the level of Arnold Palmer. He's not to the level of Gary player. He's not to the level of Jack Nicholas, he wasn't one of the big three. That's why Casper wrote his autobiography, The Big Three and Me, about that period in the 1960s, in which he really didn't get the credit that he deserved. But everyone looks upon that U.S. Open as the collapse of Arnold Palmer instead of viewing it as, look what Billy Casper did to come back, because of who they are relative to the spectrum of where people put the golfing immortals. Billy Casper, for better or for worse, and I think it's for worse, but Billy Casper isn't high enough up on that ladder for it to be remembered for what he did. Instead, it's remembered for what Arnold Palmer did not. Mm-hmm. And now let's go to the opposite side of the coin, and you mentioned this a moment ago, and I think for Americans, when Danny Willett won, and a lot of people are saying to themselves, who's this Danny Willett guy? But Danny Willett, yeah. you know, in his own right, you know, finished fourth last year in the World Tour Championship in, in, in the race to Dubai behind uh, Rory McIlroy. He had five European wins, two this year now, right, including the Dubai D- Desert Classic back in mm-hmm. February. He's jettisoned you know, himself now to the ninth-ranking player in the world. So it's, but it's not like Danny Willett came from out of nowhere. That's true. It hasn't been a surge. It's been an ascent 
for Danny Willett. His has been a much more traditional path of, of a top-tier player where he kept getting better and better and better. I mean, he played at the Vals Bar the week before. If memory serves me, he finished somewhere in the, in the mid to high 20s. You know, nothing great. But he's a player that does have talent. What he really has is tenacity. His, his swing doesn't look particularly classic. He's got a somewhat restricted hip, hip rotation, but he has tenacity in that he will not be outworked. He, in fact, he told me after the Masters that that's the one thing that he knows he can control. He can't control how big and strong you are, Chris. He can't control what kind of natural gifts that, he, that he's going to be up against. He can't control how well Jordan Spieth may be putting against him on a given day. But what he can control is he control how much effort he puts in. And he's a kid who will not be outworked. That's his perspective on it. And that's a very powerful, powerful perspective to have, particularly now after the victory, because he has a confidence of knowing that he can do it. Marry that to the tenacity that goes along with endless hours of work. And that's hard to beat. Matt, I think also the masses sort of got introduced to a kid who's going to be around for a very, very long time in Bryson DeChambeau, who, you know, by the way, is, you know, only a couple of months younger than Jordan Spieth. You know, he won that NCAA individual title, the U.S. amateur title, becoming only the fifth player to win both of those in the same year. So, you know, he finished, ended up finished tied for 21st at Augusta, 77 in the third round, sort of took him out of contention. But we in the media – we, we love to anoint, you know, the next guy and get, you know, get way ahead of ourselves. But he backed up his play in the Masters with a fourth-place finish last week at Harbortown in his first, you know, official professional tour. Missed the cut yesterday, unfortunately. But do you expect that he is going to quickly be right up there in the conversation with a Jordan and a Rory and a Jason Day and a Rick, Ricky Fowler as we kind of think about the young guns out there today? No, I don't actually. And it's not because I don't think he's capable of doing it. It's just that along the lines of what you're saying, I think we're so quick to, to find the next superstar in, in the waters in which we're now swimming, Chris, that I think it's unfair. I think he has the potential to do it, but until someone actually goes out and does it, I think it's a little bit ridiculous to have the conversation about how high and how far they're going to fly when they haven't even started to soar yet. He, had, he, he did have a good fourth-place finish at Harbortown. It's, it's a tactician's golf course. It doesn't require a great deal of brawn. Uh, and he played well, and we give him the credit for that. But if, we, if we're going to go by what happened in the flash of a moment, as you, as you noted, he missed the cut from, from this week. So from that perspective, if, if it's what he did today, then he's not going to do anything. He's, ne- he's never going to get his card, and he's going to miss every cut he ever played. That's equally as unfair <laughs> as putting him in a – position to say that he's going to be one of the game's next stars he's a very unique kid there's no doubt about that the way that he's approaching the game this idea of having all of his shafts of his irons the same length which i know is causing a great deal of curiosity from people but even that there's there's more complexity to the answer of whether that would work for the average person in simplistic terms as an old club guy unless you have strength and clubhead speed which the vast majority do not because i'm talking in relative terms here then you're not going to be able to get the dynamic performance from your longer irons the lower lofted irons because the longer shaft and the bow and the flex and the torque that goes along with it is part of why they make those irons the length that they do so that because they have less loft so you've got to adjust the head length or head weight you've got to adjust the flex of the shaft that you use otherwise 
it's going to come in at like a C0 and be as stiff as a tree. So there's more to it than meets the eye. It, but what, what the eye can see as yet from Bryson is very, very interesting. I'll give you that. I'm talking with Matt Adams of the Fairways of Life show on Sirius XM's PGA channel and the Golf Channel as well. And Matt, you know, golf is going to make its return to the Olympics this summer. You know, the mm. games have become a nightmare down there in Brazil. I really can't believe that the Olympic Committee hasn't pulled the plug on Rio and scrambled to do something else because of the conditions that so many athletes are going to you know, be asked to, whether it's compete under or deal with down there. They also have to deal with the Zinka virus, which is spread by mosquitoes, and they've had an outbreak down there. When we've seen guys like Adam Scott and BJ Singh and Louis Ustazen recently say, you know, hey, I'm not going to play in the Olympics. It just doesn't fit into my schedule. How much of that do you think really is the conditions and the threat of the Zika virus that uh, suddenly has clouded up their schedule? I think that may be a part of it. I don't actually think it's as much a part of it as some other people are making out of it because, you know, the, the, where I live in Florida, the, there, there are mosquitoes with the Zika virus, Zika virus as well, and they're going to be down in Brazil right now. And while it is very, very serious, particularly to pregnant women, the Zika virus is not turning people into zombies. So with the protection, you know, from uh, mosquito repellents, et cetera, there are things that you can do to protect yourself against the exposure to the mosquitoes that might be carrying that particular virus. So I don't really think it's that that is as big a deal as people are making it out to be. I do think that some people are using it as, an excuse when the reality is that in the compressed schedule that, that we have right now, I think players are looking at that, that and going, I don't want to go down there, go through all that it takes for me to get there, be there, perform there, do everything I have to do and come back and then go back onto my schedule in which I'm competing, which again, in a very, very compressed time frame. What do we have in seven weeks? I think we have, three majors, world golf championships. You've got invitationals in there. You've got start of the, the FedEx Cup playoffs and then on the, and the Olympics. Then on the other side of that, we've got a Ryder Cup as well. So I think that's what's kind of going into it. I, for my part, from my opinion, I absolutely disagree with them. I, I think it's going to be the same as, as tennis in the Olympics when some of the big guns and some of the big stars and people at it that are used to being treated like you know kings and queens – they, they were grumbling, but once they were there and once they were representing their respective countries, particularly once they were standing upon that podium and their national anthem was played, everything changes. So I'm very excited about golf being back into the Olympics. I'm not crazy about the format, but at the end of the day, the fact that the golf is there means more to me than anything else. And I honestly can't believe that anybody that's there representing their country is, is going to, they're going to fight off the tears in their eyes when they hear the national anthem when they're there. So I, I just, I think there's, there's people that are making rash decisions and I, I frankly think they're wrong. Do you think we're going to see any more players pulling out? Yeah, I think you probably will. I think it's, I think it's the nature of it. There's, there's clearly an effort going on pressure upon players. Currently you can tell that whoever, whoever's harboring those thoughts, all the powers that be are trying to put whatever amount of pressure upon them they possibly can to get them to alter that perspective or change their opinion. But I, I just think that if, if people settle down and, and take a good hard look at the significance of what we're talking about, this is golf back in the Olympic Games for the first time in over a century, maybe all the, all the details in the recipe aren't perfect yet. Maybe the dish won't come out 
tasting as, as good as we all hoped it would be, but the dish is still there, and the buffet is golf in the Olympics, and I think everybody needs to be on board. And if they don't, if, if more and more guys pull out, I mean, they, they, to, your, to you, your point, Matt, I think this has historical significance, right? Because if we lose more of the bigger-name guys deciding to play down there, the, you know, the Olympic Committee is, is you know, less apt to put it in the 2024 games and beyond if it can't attract the game's greatest players, right? Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, though. Again, history's not going to remember who wasn't there. History's not going to remember that VJ wasn't there, who's unlikely to have contended anyway. History's not going to remember that Louis Oosthuizen wasn't there from South Africa, who could have won a gold medal if he, if he was. History's going to look at who was the first gold medal recipient when golf was introduced back to the Olympics. And you've got players like Jordan Spieth, and you've got players like Jason Day that are talking about just how excited they are of going there and representing their country and playing. So I'm not worried about what happens when it's all said and done with the Olympics either. The Olympics are going to be fine. The golf is going to be fine. And we're going to, we're going to put a, a, a ribbon and a medal around somebody's neck that won the first gold medal in the Olympics in over a century, and all will be right. That's my, my saying about the people not being there is not to lament their, their absence, but I truly and honestly think they're missing out on something. And Matt, talking about representing your country, as we look even further ahead to the Ryder Cup matches this year up in Hazeltine National Golf Course, take, it's going to take place the week of September 27th through October the 2nd. Curious to get your thoughts. What, what does Davis Love need to do differently so that uh, we have a, a better shot at a successful outcome this time around? Well, you know, there's a couple thoughts that I have relative to that, Chris. My, my first thought is, is I think that we put a great deal of emphasis upon what, say, the Americans didn't do in ensuring that they've lost the vast majority of the, you know, eight of the ten, the vast majority of the Ryder Cups of ten that have been played, instead of putting focus on what the European team has done. The European team has played brilliant golf. They've made the putts that they needed to make at the time that they needed to make them. And so when they put together the Ryder Cup task force, now called the Ryder Cup committee, it was interesting to me because there is so much of the so-called secret of the European success that is right in front of our noses. It's right there if you see it. For example, when you're talking about the captain, and the captain on the Ryder Cup side is a question of harmony a question of players feeling as though the person that's been put into a position to lead them is a person that they wanted in the position to lead them, to go into that foxhole with. And I mean that respectfully, as I know we're across the, the Armed Forces Network. So when you look at what the Europeans have done, their captains all came to the captaincy after working their way through the system. Assistant captains, for example, here's, here's another example of something that's right in front of our noses and how many people noticed it. Darren Clark has already led a team into team competition. It was the Seve Trophy. And so that's what I mean about how they, how they let their people develop into the role and they get to know the players. The European Tour administers the European side of the Ryder Cup. In the United States, it is not the PGA Tour that administers the U.S. side of the Ryder Cup. It's the PGA of America. So as a result, in Europe, they would go to Paul McGinley before the Ryder Cup in that year, even two years, whatever he wanted, and they, they'd let him see who's in the, the tournament. And Paul would say, hey, you know what? I'd like to see how Victor Dubosson plays alongside of Graham McDowell. Can you pair them together in the first two rounds? 
So they gave, and this isn't a secret. It's right in front of our eyes. It's right before our nose. They, so these are all the things that they do so that there is this handholding throughout and with all of the organizations so that the captain coming in has as much information as he possibly can so he's not forced to make decisions the week of the Ryder Cup and hope that he's going down the right direction. He can do it with a great deal of assurance that the homework that he's already done over the course of months or more is already well-placed. So those are some of the things. If, I know that's long-winded, but when you ask me about what David Club III can do, it's what the entire organization and infrastructure yeah. can do to help him make better decisions. And that's just a couple of them that I touched on. There are many, many more than that, but it isn't a secret. We know exactly what they're doing. It's just you have to look at it holistically. I'm talking with Matt Adams of the Fairways of Life show on Sirius XM's PGA channel and the golf channel as well. And Matt, one more before we let you go. And you know, our, my next guest is a 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. You've interviewed Sean several times. He's co-hosted your show along with you as well. Just uh, wanted to, what's your favorite Sean McKeel story? Well, it has to be his seven iron at, at the PGA. The, the thing that I like about Shawnee, and this is an interesting conversation because we had it the last time that he was on was Sean McKeel won a major championship. Nobody gave it to him. No one said, hey, you know what? You've been around long enough. We think it's time that we give you the Wanamaker trophy. Why don't you take this and move on down the road? He did what he had to do at the time that he had to do it. And more power to him for that. And it's really interesting, as, as you know from having talked to Sean many times in the past and, and today, he's a guy that, that is so humble that he struggles with, I think, the weight of what he accomplished. But he did it, and more power to him. So when you talk about Sean McKeel, the thing that impresses me the most about Sean McKeel is who Sean McKeel is, the human being. The way that he allows things in people touch his heart, and the way that he emotionally brings, pe- brings things uh, internally. It's, in his case... He didn't win a major championship because he was entitled to it. That's what I'm saying. He's not that type of mm-hmm. person at all. And it's, it's really, really impressive. He's, and, again, I'm saying this, and your audience already knows this because you have him on with, with regularity, but it's who Sean is as a person that impresses me the most. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that statement, Matty. Matt, um, I always like to end our time together by quoting you because we try to keep everything as positive as we can on this show. And you do such a great job of that on your show and in your books. And, and you wrote in your book, if we all are destined to miss our share of three foot putts in life, then we can at least seek to increase our odds of success through preparation and a conviction, not only that we are capable of success, but that we deserve it. And that's another statement I couldn't agree more with. Matt, thank you so much. You deserve your success, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come on with you again. It's always a pleasure. Matt, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your morning to be a part of the show. My thanks as well to Dominic for helping to arrange the interview. Matt, all the best to you and your family. I look forward. Hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. We'll talk to you down the road. Bye-bye. All right. Take care, Matt. Again, that is Matt Adams of of the uh, Fairways of Life show. You can find it. On, uh, on Sirius XM's PGA channel in the morning. I, I listen to him every morning on my commute. You can also find him. Watch fairwaysoflife.com slash video so you can stream his show as well. Great stuff. Always enjoy the opportunity to talk to Matt Adams. 
All right, we've got our next guest, Sean McKeel, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Sean on the other side of this word from our friends over at The Leather Shop. Check out our friends at The Leather Shop, the only company in the world with the ability to provide true, custom-fit, handcrafted, full-grain leather shoes and boots online. That's right, no need to leave home for quality handmade shoes. The best part? The models on their website are mere suggestions. You can request customizations to any design shown or submit your own unique design. No extra charge. For more information, visit our website, nextonthet.net, and click the TLS logo on the bottom of our homepage, or to visit them directly, go to www.the-leather-shop.com and click your country's flag in the top left corner. That's www.the-leather-shop.com. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now back with me on the French Lick Guest Resort line is 2003 PGA champion and our good friend Sean McKeel. Good morning, Sean. How have you been, my friend? I've been great, man. How are you? I'm <laughs> listening to Matt. Chris, I'm doing great. <laughs> so, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you might have heard Matt's you know final comments there, and um, curious to get your thoughts. I I couldn't agree with his statement more. They, you know, you're not only are you know are you a great golfer, but you're a ten times better person. And and we've talked on this show many times. It seems you know it, it does seem like you're so humble that the uh, that the weight of being a uh, a major champion is, is uh, something you're uncomfortable with. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think um, it's taken me a long time to kind of really delve into that. Um, you know, when you've have had a couple of years of really non-competitive golf. Um, and so, you know, you think about some of the things that um, have has happened to you in your life, um, you know, that maybe molded the way you were as a person or as a professional or as a professional golfer or whatever the case may be. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do struggle with that. I mean, you and I have talked about that, and Matt really yep. kind of hit on it, and we talked about that a little bit during his show last month. And, um, you know, we all, I think all of us really, we want to be have our careers um, be as fulfilling and as successful as we really want them to be. And uh, things along the way sometimes, um, you know, alter that course a little bit. And, and I certainly had my share of that. It just – I, I think it's not the way that I would have scripted my career is really how I would describe it. I mean, I certainly wanted to uh, enjoy some success on the PGA Tour, um, you know, with some wins. And, look, I did I did play some pretty good golf um, up until the 2003 PGA. And But you're seeing it now with these young kids that have put themselves in position. Um, you know, I think of guys like Chris Stroud and, you know, who's who's been out there playing quite a, quite a long time that, is probably due for his first win, and and there are many others out there. And so I think you know I just I did I just did it a different way. And it, much like David Duvall, if any of you remember when David won uh, his British Open, his Open Championship, as they call it, you know he struggled really after that because he he came out and finally admitted he, he, that he felt like you know I won this Open Championship. I mean, is that it? Is this is as good as it feels? And uh, uh, I don't know um, if I had that because he had a lot of success up to that point. But um, yeah, it's just uh, it's been it's been frustrating. I think um, to not uh, achieve some of the things that I wanted to achieve um, post uh, you know major win, I guess. But 
I had some really good success. I played well in 04. 05 was a bit of a struggle. You know, I was struggling with um, you still being that major champion, but also being a new father. Um, and those are the things that really I struggled with in the beginning. And I alluded to that with Matt in that, you know, not only was I uh, you know, my a first-time winner in August of that year of 03, but a major champion as well. And then three months later, I'm now a father. And so struggling with the, the nighttime feedings and, you know, how do I go about this? What do I do? You know, am I doing this right? And so there were a lot of things that really were hitting me at the, at the, at the, at the time that I should have been, um, you know, really, I guess, would have been focused just 100% on my golf. And uh, timing is everything in this world. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, to really answer your question, uh, yeah, it, it, is, it has been a struggle. I deal with it a lot better than I used to um, just because so much time has really passed. But, but um you know, I do uh, I do appreciate what I accomplished. Um, as Matt said, it it wasn't given to me. I struggled uh, through the four days. I I played well. I slept on the lead on Friday and Saturday night. And um, you know, so those are the things that I really kind of can justify and you know reconcile in my own head that that I did deserve to win the tournament. It just happened to be a major championship. Yeah, and you know, and Sean, we we've talked about this, but you know, and we talk about the mental side of the game on this show all the time. But I think that that is one thing that none of us can really appreciate because we've never been there. As you talked about, sleeping on the lead, not only just sleeping on the lead in a golf tournament, but sleeping on the lead in a major golf tournament, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's okay that you know, for you know, for you know, we see guys, you know, that we're surprised to see sometimes at the at the top of the leaderboard after the first round, but you stayed there for the second round. And the third round. So you had, you know, all those nights to think about it. For those of us that, you know, wonder what is that like? Remind remind our listeners for you know for those of you you know that are listening that have heard you tell the story before, but for those who are new to the show, talk about what it's like to try to sleep on the lead in a major. Well, you know what? You started the week out, you're just a just a regular guy that's happy to be in the event, you know, so you get along and then kind of playing your practice rounds and really Thursday I think I shot 69 that day, which um, was still a couple of strokes out of the lead. But but the media and everyone, they were still focused on, uh, you know, I think Rod Pampling was up there, Phil Mickelson was up there. Um, so they're still focused on them. But on Friday is when I took the lead. And I don't remember if it was, uh, you know, you'd think I remember this. But, I mean, uh, <laughs> Thursday, or let's see, on, on 17, I think I made a birdie, or 16, I made a birdie, which is actually seven. I finished on seven, eight, nine. Um, but I birdied the last hole and I knew I had the lead. And, and, um, so that's really when it started for me because it, it was, I was a, a relatively new person to major championship golf. I played in two prior U S opens. Um, I played the 99, uh, one at Pinehurst and the 2001 U S open at, at, uh, Southern Hills. So I was relatively new. I was brand new to PJ championship. You know, I, that was my first one. Um, so after I came off the green, you know, my, my normal, it was, it was, it was late. I was, I was one of the last groups coming in and Stephanie was, you know, again, six months pregnant. She was waiting for me. She, she needed to eat. Um, and here I was <laughs> being basically my practice time. Um, usually I would have gone and hit a few balls um, afterward, but I was kind of whisked away. I think just with the end of the coverage on TV, um, you know, I was in the media center for, for quite some time. Um, and then now we got to find our way back to the hotel. We're, we're, we're talking probably, you know, nine o'clock, nine fifteen at night. Um, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to do for dinner. Um, 
you know, and things like that. And so uh, my routine had, was, was changed uh, quite a bit. And um, here I was being asked questions about the significance of my win. And really on Friday, it was really more the point about what does it feel like to be leading? Um, how have you played thus far? You know, what are, you, what, what are your thoughts on um, playing in your first PGA? Th- there was really no, I don't think, any expectations that the media thought that I had a chance to win. I think it was just a new and fresh story that was coming about. And uh, I was excited about it. Look, I, I really was. I didn't, at, at that time, I really haven't given it much thought that I was going to win. I mean, how could you? Um, we all dream about winning, but until we've played all 72 holes, you know, you don't find that out. Um, and so I, I, I think I slept okay on on, um, on Friday night because really Saturday was just kind of a, a nothing day. Um, really, it was more about um, continuing the good play um, and, and those types of things. So that's really what I thought of. It was exciting for sure. I got home and I, I was watching all the Golf Channel, you know, coverage and just really, I think, looking at how I did my interviews, did I speak well, did I, did I say the right things, did I say what I wanted to say, um, and, and, and that. And that so, but it definitely changed on Saturday night. When, when, I, when I came off, um, I had bogeyed the last three holes. I had played great golf. I, I was seven under playing with Billy Andre. And then on Saturday, I bogeyed the last three holes. And so that really stuck with me. Um, because I'm like, oh man, I, I had it going and I kind of fell apart. And of course, those were the first questions that I received in the media center again um, when I finished. And, um, and and in some ways, the tones of the, the tone of some of the questions was that, well, okay, Sean's finally he's finally feeling the heat. He's finally not going to get this tournament. And not that anybody was happy for that, but I could I, I started fielding a lot more questions about that, I started getting the sense that um, I wasn't the, the darling champion that everybody wanted um, for the PGA. And um, I thought about that. Uh, I don't think I never, never mentioned that to Stephanie, but those are some of the feelings that I got. So that, that made it a little bit more difficult. Um, and so I started feeling like now people don't really want me to win because I haven't done any, um, haven't really done anything, had much success on the PGA tour prior. Um, so so that bothered me a little bit. So sleeping on that was was a little bit difficult. Also, you know, you come off, you see that when you're doing your interviews, the, the trophy sitting right there, the historical significance of the win, just the effect it would have on my family, on my parents, um, on my friends, on my teachers, all the things that, that I was carrying this burden. I felt that, wow, if I could win this, I would, I would be able to share my appreciation with all of these people that have helped me along the way. And, and I was able to do that. And fortunately, on Sunday night, I was able to convey a lot of those messages and those thoughts and those thanks and appreciation for everybody that, uh, you know, really, um, you know, gave me the opportunity to play professional golf. But uh, uh, it's uh, it's really hard to describe, I, I guess, is that there's a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of worry, a lot of angst. But yet at the same time, um, I, one of my closing statements um, on Saturday night is they asked me how I was going to sleep and how I thought I was going to play the next day. And uh, I answered the question like, um, you know, obviously I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I feel pretty good. And I was playing well. And, and I tell you, I wasn't, I had no lack of confidence with the way that I was playing, with the way I was putting. Um, I had a good pairing. There were a lot of things that were maybe working in my favor. Um, 
it might have been different if I was paired with a major champion, uh, like 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 Tiger was not playing well, but Phil or Ernie or somebody that was kind of hanging around there. And I suspect, I suspect, yeah. I mean, um, but um, uh, so maybe the the stars kind of lined up. But I did play pretty well, and uh, yes, you did. I made a lot of birdies on Sunday. I made a lot of birdies on Sunday. I made, matter of fact, for the week, I made twenty one birdies. Um, on a very tough and fast golf course, much different than it was in 2013. I mean, much different. Now, now Jason played well, won the tournament, but I think there were, what, just two or three of us under par uh, on right. uh, on three. 2003. And, you know, some are going to say, you know, just because, oh, well, the players are better and all this other stuff, but that's, that's BS, you know. So um, <laughs> it was it a very tough golf course. It was It was long. It was fast. Balls are running through the fairways on the angles. Anybody that's been there knows there's a lot of little dog legs and stuff in there, a lot of little blind tee shots, like 16 and 17 in particular. So it was a, it was a difficult golf course, and uh, uh, but uh, sleeping on the lead was uh, it was fun, but it but it wasn't. <laughs> to describe it really. So it just just to put a period at the end of this, so so everyone can remember, you know, you go back and as humble as you always are, talking about bogeying the last three holes on Saturday, one of only five players in the field that day to break seventy, um, yeah. and you know, and Phil Nicholson, uh, Phil Mickelson, who uh, had the first round lead, shot sixty six in the first, shot seventy five in the second. Ernie Els, uh, who fin- ended up finishing uh, fifth that week at plus two didn't break 70 and you broke 73 times out of the four yeah. round shot 70 in the final round. So don't sell yeah. yourself short, you know, Ernie else there, Phil Mickelson in there, uh, tiger did not play well that week to your point. No. So it wasn't like there, you know, anyone who thinks that the players in that field weren't as strong yeah. as the players that are playing now, you know, Adam Scott was in the field that week. I mean, you know, I mean, all the great players that, you know, from the early parts of the 2000s, VJ was at the height of his, uh, his, uh, you know, career at the peak of his career, Freddie couples. I mean, the, the talent was there. So no one can take away the yeah. fact that you played better than everybody that there was to play in 2003. Yeah. You know, and, and, and right. And really back to the first question is that, you know, when people, you know, people say, well, you didn't really do much after that. But what I've come to realize is that every one of these players, even hall of famers are questioned by media and by fans, uh, either on social media or directly. Um, in interviews, and it's like uh, I'll look at Jim Furyk for example. You know, Jim Furyk I think has won 19 tournaments, I believe. So 20, it's your 20th, uh, 20th one. You're fully exempt for life on the PGA Tour. So I can look at you look at Jim. Well, Jim, you've played great, but why have you only won 19? Or Mike Weir, why <laughs> you're a great player, major chip? Why have you only won nine? I mean, you know, Tiger, you've won 14 majors. Why, why can't you get to 18? It is it is impossible to please everyone. It is absolutely impossible. God, look, I'm married to a lawyer, so I, I mean, she's going to argue that it's really the sky's <laughs> blue out today. That it's really not blue. That it's some sort of like steel gray. Okay, and and those are the things. And really, in the last year or so, I finally just gave up. I finally have given up. It's why people don't talk about politics. It's why people don't talk about religion at dinner or amongst friends. It's an unwinnable argument. I'm a black and white guy. I believe one plus one equals two. Uh, all the time, and so living with a lawyer, my perspective is a little bit different. But um, it's just I, I've just given up. I, I just I just have given up. I mean, 
you know, uh, it's with, with, with politics. You know, if, 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 if Jesus Christ came to life today, uh, some would argue that uh, being nailed to that coffin was a political stunt. It is absolutely impossible. I've, I've given up on trying to, to, to please everyone. I don't care what, what, what people say anymore. I've just given up. And I don't know if that's just come today or came last week or what. I've just, I'm just given up. And I'm going to, you know, I focus on what I can focus on. And, you know, I've seen that in Jordan's speech. And maybe that's what's kind of turned the corner for me because this young kid who's 22 years old has had an opportunity to win the Grand Slam last year. Um, you know, obviously fell short there at, at, at the Open Championship. But the things that people were writing about him, about his lob wedge, about he's not a good wedge, I'm just like, okay. I'm done, and it's really <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just debated. I'm just getting off social media altogether because it is these things are unwinnable, and you have your fans, the fans that really appreciate the things that you do, um, and then you have the people that are just out there to to just kind of badger you a little bit and and try to belittle every little thing you do, and it's just it's just it's just not worth it. It's just not a lot of fun, and I I'm certainly glad that social media wasn't around when in '03. I mean, I got enough of that kind of negativity from people like Dan Jenkins and others that, that um, took it upon themselves to, uh, you know, to, to write their little pieces, um, you know, of comedy and, uh, you know, really knew nothing about what it was like to be inside the ropes. Yeah. And so I just, I'm just over it. I'm just over it. Uh, just to put a period and we'll move on to another topic uh, for, you know, you only did one thing. People, I, I think, forget too quickly you finished second at the 2006 PGA championship five strokes behind Tiger Woods, but uh, you, you were in the number two slot. And, 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 you know, again, the same group of superstars were playing, you know, that year as well. So, yep. you know, yep. out, outside of Tiger Woods, you, you, you know, you'd have won two majors. So uh, I think people forget that too quickly about your career. Oh, they, do. they do. And you know, it's look, I've, I've had some good time, but I don't think anybody in any profession goes through their entire career and wishes that it couldn't have been a little bit better. I mean, I'm sure there are some, of course, but um, you know, um, these hall of fame players, they, they look back and some of the decisions they made and, and they're like, Oh, I could have been better. I could have been better. And, you know, history judges all of us. And that's why sometimes I wish it was just, you could be invisible, you know, I mean, um, and just, just play the game. But it, it's not that way. I mean, uh, you got to put up with some of this stuff. And, and uh, I think for the most part, you know, I have. Um, but uh, I have a lot of great memories about golf. Uh, uh, you know, my life on the PGA Tour, certainly I, w- I want to try to – I'd like to get back out there one more year and and, um, and, and everything. But, you know, I – you know, speaking to Oak Hill, I mean, I always played really difficult courses well, and this goes back to my college days. I mean, I I just found something in really challenging golf courses that uh, made me feel like I was better at those than the other ones. I mean, I've always struggled on easy courses uh, where there's a really, really low scores. I mean, I certainly have made my share of birdies, and I think that's what really hurts me now, um, even in some of the events that I've played in the web.com is, you know, outside of a couple of courses, I think the one in Indiana is very difficult. But for the most part, these guys are shooting 25, 20, 20 to 28 under par. And, you know, you get this mindset of um, playing tough courses like the Tour where you've got, you know, they start putting the pins three from the edges. There's long, they're longer, uh, a lot more rough and those types of things. Um, you know, it's difficult for me to play the easy courses. So I always kind of look forward to the hard courses, and maybe that's why. Um, the PGA to kill was just uh, just fit. I don't I don't really know, but um, 
I mean, that's uh, something I've always enjoyed, the, the challenge of a of a long course where over the course of four days, people get frustrated, they get beaten up. Um, you know, because my ball striking was always something that, uh, uh, you know, really helped me. And there's something that kind of, you know, reminds me. I was paired with, uh, in 2010, I was paired with uh, Rocco Mediate and Graham McDowell the first two rounds of the U.S. Open, and I was tied for the lead after the first day. And after the first day, Rocco came up, so we shook hands, and uh, at, at the end of the uh, 18th there, and uh, he said, you didn't disappoint, Sean. And like, what are you talking about? He says, I told my caddy, you're one of the best ball strikers I've ever seen, and you didn't disappoint me. Thank you very much. You know, so it made me feel good. Wow. Um, it made me feel good. And, and um, so, uh, you know, maybe some of that's left me now, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, I take away a lot of that. And uh, there are always things that help me back. You know, there's always things that keep people from winning, you know, multiple times or whatever. But, but uh, I got a lot of great memories. Yes, you do. And I appreciate the fact that you share them with us. Uh, and I'm talking with 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel here on Next on the Tee. Sean, just a couple more before we let you go. And you talk about getting off of social media, and I really hope that you don't. Um, but I saw on your Twitter page, you commented on how much you like the toe-up technology on the putters that uh, you're seeing from Odyssey Golf. Talk about what that is, toe-up, and uh, what struck you about it. Well, okay, so I, I, the whole technology behind it, I really couldn't get into as far as the science behind it. I know there's plenty of people that you can have on that can do that, but I know <laughs> that when I got this putter, it's 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 similar. It was not similar. It's exactly like the backstrike putter. In 2010, I wasn't wasn't putting great, um, but I but I was wanting something a little bit different, and I, I was kind of leaning towards mallet style. So. When I made the decision to change putters, I was going completely different. And they had this putter. It was a, it was kind of a strange-looking thing. It was almost like it had onset where the shaft is behind the, the face of the putter. And um, But when you when you hold the putter in your hand, you know, I, I, I used to like putters with a little bit of toe hang, like a quarter toe hang. And that would be like think of an 8802, a totally heel-shafted putter. If you just held it out, the toe is going to hang straight down. Well, I liked mine to hang about a quarter. Um, you know, to give me a little bit of face rotation, uh, natural face rotation, because I always had a tendency to use my left hand too much, and my left hand was turned too weak on the grip so that the heel would sometimes go back first. And so I would struggle with pulls and, and things like that, and, and if I timed it right, I put it well. If I didn't, I hit a lot of pulls. Well, this technology, uh, the, the toe hangs straight up. I think they call it kind of stroke balance. Is, is how I would describe it. Um, it, it. It, you know, where a face balance putter hangs, the face is straight up to the sky when you just kind of lay it in your hand. This just allows the club, I think, to re, to come back to impact without a lot of face rotation. I mean, there's a little bit, but um, there's no torque in it. So, like, the putter doesn't, like, twist offline. When you hit it, you make impact with the club, the, 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 the toe or the heel, if you hit it off the toe, you know, the heel is going to come, um, you know, this doesn't do that. And so that it allows, but one thing I found with this toe up putter, and I really, I really like it. I'm going to have to send it back, I think, because it's too upright. Um, over the last couple of years, I've, I've kind of flat, gotten a little bit flatter with my putters um, to just accommodate a little bit distance, a little bit further away from the ball that I like and allow my hands to be just a little bit lower to hang a little bit more under my shoulders. So I've got to get it back, but, it's a it's a it's a kind of a, a unique putter, maybe not as strange looking as the backstrike. That putter was around 
for a few years. I don't know if it was a great seller, but I'm not sure that people really understand the science behind these putters. I mean, you know, when they see a, a strange-looking putter, people it's kind of like me with clubs or any of us with clubs. You look at it, and like, oh, man, I, I don't like the way that looks. And then you don't ever give it a chance. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it is really marketing and uh, getting this out there. And then, of course, having a player on the PGA or LPGA Tour have some success with it. I think that's where you really mm-hmm. see, uh, you know, the advertisement and the credibility in the product. And um, but I love it. I mean, my my the back strike that I use is like I said has the same technology. Um, I do like the white hot insert in my back strike. I like a little softer feel. This particular head has, I believe, the Metalworks, which is the new technology, and it does feel good. It's just different because I I've always I've used an insert, this white hot insert, for another six years now. So I'm kind of used to that sound, that feel. But um, the technology behind it is uh, I understand it from a player. I can't explain it, you know, very well. Um, but I think people ought to go out there and try it. It just allows that the, there's not a lot of face rotation, um, but there is some. And uh, it allows the club to come back to impact a lot square. So there's not as much manipulation in the hands to, for timing and stuff. So it uh, might be good to have somebody from Odyssey on again. I know you've had yeah. people on. so. It's a, yeah, it's we'll a get Chris Kosky to come like back it. on and talk about yeah, that. Cause yeah, yeah, I think, I think he tweeted something out, too. He, he retweeted um, that um, he thinks the technology is probably better than what I have in my backstrike, and I'd be interested to, to know why. So we'll see if we can't get him back on the show to explain why. Maybe we can have uh, have Sean or uh, have Chris on the show and then you, and we'll ask. That'll be the last question. You'll be able to hear uh, his response. I think that would be <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. So. Last thing, Sean, before we let you go, you've talked about potentially writing a book when you've joined us in the past. Any further thought on that? Yeah, you know, you gave me some really good ideas. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I thought about it, you know, particularly, and, I, and of course I have not mentioned this, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, my father is in a really tough battle right now. And, um, you know, and so a lot, of, a lot of these things that I've been wanting to do, um, even my golf really is on is on hold. You know, as as you know, he is suffering from glioblastoma, and um, it's something that we found out about a couple of months ago. And I was down in Florida practicing, and it prompted me to come home. But um, you know, I um, you know certainly a lot of a lot of my life and a lot of my uh, successes, or really all of my successes, can go back to my two parents for you know, giving me the opportunities to, um, to play, to play golf and to have access to, to teachers and to a, to a club and to, you know, the best golf clubs and everything else. And so, um, you know, certainly, um, I owe a lot to them and, uh, been a hard, lot of hard work, uh, you know, along the way, but, but certainly them giving me my start, um, you know, I have a lot of, just a lot of appreciation for what they did for me, but, so it's been tough because, uh, uh, you know, with with trying to stay close to home, my sister um, is a, a medical officer in Madagascar. She is the in, uh, in charge of health care for the 130 Peace Corps volunteers in Madagascar, and she's actually been home and had to go wow. back to Washington, D.C. for training, and she's coming back tonight, um, you know, to be with us and everything. And so it's just been – it's been very difficult the last couple of months. I, I really was wanting to do some Monday qualifiers. I had signed up to do, um, uh, I was going to do Valero and I was going to do the, um, tournament in new Orleans to Zurich. 
Um, and just this, my, my father's 20 radiation treatments into 30. And um, after that, they might be able to do five more, but the treatment really, really stops. And at this point, it's palliative care, which is really unfortunate. And anybody knows anything about glioblastoma and just knows how devastating um, that the disease really is, and there's no cure. So I'm, my golf, unfortunately, is on hold, but it's given me an opportunity to, um, you know, spend a lot of time with my father and to, to play golf with him. He's still okay to play. Um, you know, he's still playing every day. And, um, but, um, you know, so I, I don't know. Everything's really been kind of on hold. I've, I've thought about the book. Um, and as you and I have talked, I mean, it's – I mean, it's, it doesn't really. I don't really want it to be an autobiographical book because really my life hasn't been that interesting. We all, we all have interesting lives. You, know, you just, I just have uh, people like you and Matt Adams that are that that give me the opportunity to share with people my story. Um, but my story is not really unique. I mean, everyone, every one of us has has things that, are, that have happened to us in our lives that are that are great and interesting and and, uh, and sad and and heartbreaking and everything like that. So. Um, I don't know exactly the angle that I want to write. I don't know if I want to try to draw in a younger audience, um, if there are things that I can help people with. Um, as you know, technology and the game has changed so much. Social media has changed the way people approach not only the game, but also the, the participants. Um, you know, and so uh, I just don't know what angle. And, and Matt, you know, has written several books. Uh, you gave me a lot of ideas. You know, I know John Feinstein, he's written a book, you know, Moment of Glory about myself and Jim and Ben Curtis uh, and Mike Weir um, that was out a number of years ago. So there have been a lot of, lot of things written about me. I just need to find the right angle and uh, maybe a maybe a ghostwriter along the way, too. So, um, again, long-winded, um, but uh, I, I thought about it, but I just, I've kind of been sidetracked a little bit. Yeah, well, understandably so. Yep, so um, understandably yeah. so. But you've I got a great story. You do, and you've got great things to share with folks, and I think that, that people will find, you know, beneficial in their own lives. So uh, I hope at some point uh, you get back to thinking about that. But certainly, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with your father, and and uh, I think that's, you know, I think you're doing the right thing. Spending time with him is uh, the way I. What's what I would do too. So I'm very glad that uh, that you've got the opportunity to to be with him and and uh, yeah. you know, be on this ride. Yeah, there's Sean, a lot of things, you know. I I was hoping to take uh, I was hoping to take him down to the Masters this past this past uh, couple weeks ago, but uh, just the treatments and stuff just wouldn't allow it. So uh, there's a lot of things we're wanting to to try to to try to do together and and everything. And we're still kind of living our lives as father and son. And um, you know, as many people know, my mom passed from cancer in 2010. So it's just he and I and my sisters um, back in town for a little while. So we're just enjoying each other and, and uh, just trying to get through this together. And, and uh, yep. none of us really know what the future holds, but uh, so we're kind of living day by day, but uh, it's been, it's been great so far. And my dad and I have probably connected a little bit, uh, a little bit better, uh, a little bit more on some substantive things as opposed to the regular conversations about golf in our day. And I'm uh, hearing a lot of stories about his life in the air force and the things that he did and, uh, it's been uh, it's been great getting to know him again. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful story. Thanks for sharing all of that, Sean. Um, 
before we let you go, and I know, you know, trepidation about, about social media, but uh, for our listeners that want to share some positive thoughts and stories and, and uh, you know, maybe some things along the way with respect to your father as well, remind our listeners how they can follow you uh, both online and over social media. Well, I'm, you know, I'm Sean McKeel on Facebook. You can find me there. And then I'm at Sean McKeel PGA um, on Twitter. And then I think I've got a LinkedIn um a LinkedIn account. You can just type my name into LinkedIn. So that's where you can find me. I, I, look, I like social media. I enjoy, I enjoy keeping up with the news. The current events are uh, are posted pretty quickly when things happen. Um, I enjoy, but uh, I just I kind of gotten tired of the negativity and and uh, there's a lot of that out there. And uh, yes, there is an opinion, and everybody's willing to share it. So I'm not <laughs> always in tune to hearing what your opinion is. Um, but you know, if I'm going to give my opinion then I'm, I'm certainly open and uh, willing to accept uh, other people's opinion, even if it doesn't agree with mine. So probably why there I don't go. give a lot of opinion on, <laughs> I comment on things that are just pretty much directly happening and don't give, I kind of, I kind of stay like uh, Sweden in this whole, whole social media thing. It's just not, it's not worth it. I don't have enough time. I'm not smart enough to create something in 140 characters. Um, I'm amazed at how great some of these people are um, at, at speaking their mind and, in one short little blip, you know, but um, uh, that was never my thing. So I'll leave that to the professional writers. There you go. Sean, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to come back and be a part of the show. It's always great for me to get the opportunity to talk with you. I hope, uh, hope your schedule allows and we have the opportunity to catch you, whether it's next week or in the, in the, in the few weeks to come. But uh, in the meantime, all the best to you, all the best to your father and to your family as well. Uh, you know, we're right there with you. And I appreciate it, Chris, and, and, I, and I appreciate all the text messages that you send my way, too. So uh, thanks to you and all your listeners. I appreciate Take it very care. much, Sean. Take care. We'll catch up soon, my friend. Sounds great. All right. Bye-bye. That is 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. And uh, like I said at the top, folks, uh, there's not a finer person. Sean was a great golfer, but he, to Matt Adams' point, he, was a, he is a 10 times greater person. Thanks to, to Shonda giving a part of his morning to be a part of the show again. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode. Before we close up shop, I want to remind you about our friends and partner, PGA Tour professional Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear, let's hear from Jim and a word about them. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, they're doing some amazing things there at the uh, Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. 
All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Matt Adams and Sean McKeel for making today's show so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer, Joe Lajanusha. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear it live on Blog Talk Radio. You can catch us on the Armed Forces Radio Network, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player.fm, and SoundCloud as well. We're joined every week by legends and stars from around the NFL and up in the Canadian Football League as well. And now Major League Football has got a, a regular segment on our show as they prepare for their uh, two, uh, 2017 kickoff season. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us as well. And you can find us online. This show, nextonthetee.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. From there, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, folks. Let's keep up to date with uh, who some of our future guests are going to be as well by going on either one of our sites. Thank you again for choosing to listen to this show today. We really appreciate it. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Christmas Carol, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.